We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey everyone and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a returning guest joining us this week. Uh, He is an acclaimed and prolific chess author and historian. Uh, He writes the long-running Chess to Enjoy column for Chess Life magazine. He's got, I don't know how many books under his belt. I'm guessing under 50. We'll ask him in a minute. He's been busier than ever lately with an expanded and updated version of his um, acclaimed book, Bobby Fischer Rediscovered. And he has also just, just released the book, How to Swindle in Chess. And he's got even more on the way. So uh, welcome back to the program, Grandmaster Andy Soltis. Glad to be here, Ben. I enjoy the last time we talked. Likewise, yeah. And we're recording under this, of course, every day feels like strange circumstances right now. We're recording just um, for Let the Record Show for on March 23rd, 2020. So between the ongoing chess candidates and the uh, COVID-19 virus ravaging the world, unfortunately, who knows what will have transpired um, uh, by the time this comes out, listeners, I hope I hope you all are doing okay and taking care of yourselves. Um, but we are going to only touch on the candidates and try not to talk about anything that will be obsolete in two weeks' time. Um, but I think we can handle that. But Andy, one one thing that I found of interest was you were one of the first travel plan changes I came across, and that we were originally planning on doing this interview a little bit later. But you were going to be on one of these cruise ships. <laughs> My wife and I were going to be on the Grand Princess uh, as of next week. Um, that's the, the second ship that was stricken and ended up uh, being held hostage in San Francisco Bay for a while until they uh, offloaded the passengers. So we had to cancel that. And uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's been a strange uh, experience. But, you know, uh, we've had plans canceled in the past and we're going to get back to traveling when this is all over yeah and and uh, listeners my uh, my 
previous interview with Grandmaster Soltis uh, was episode 91 in September of 2018. And among many of uh, Andy Soltis's works that we discussed, he also discussed the fact that he's retired and his affinity for travel. So yeah, hopefully it doesn't keep you sidelined for too long. But the important thing is that you and Marcy are healthy. Um, and hope and I hope and I hope you're doing everything you can to remain so. Oh, yes, definitely. I, I'm not going to go outdoors today. I didn't go outdoors yesterday, and I hope to stay indoors all week. Yeah, and as you were saying before we recorded, a lot of chess players feel well prepared for this. Um, we're often introverts by nature, so bring it on. Mm-hmm. You know, chess is one of the few things that you can do in your house. So one of the things I, I, I fear for is that uh, when this is all over, over-the-board chess is going to take a... A bad hit because people will just get out of the habit of playing over the board uh, tournaments as we know them, and uh, you know chess to them will become purely uh, games played online, and it'd be really a sad thing if that disappeared. Yeah, it's a tricky with the competitive aspect. It's a tricky issue because if you could just somehow put a lid on the cheating issue, which obviously is no small task. Um, the idea of being able to play competitive rated chess from home, I think, is quite appealing, especially for uh, working adults. But on the other hand, as as you're um, likely alluding to, sort of the social aspect of getting together in chess does get lost a little bit. Um, so maybe there's some medium where you can still do where you can do some competitive chess at home, but there's still a place for chess clubs, which have such a rich history and can can provide a sense of community that it's just hard to mimic online. Yeah, I know what you mean. When I when I was in college, uh, I had like four priorities. Uh, one was to uh, keep my grades up. Second was uh, to work on the college newspaper. Third was uh, to work part time as a copy boy at the New York Post. Chess was the fourth priority. But one of the important things about that was, I once a week I would go to the Marshall Chess Club. That was my connection to chess. And in fact, on Friday nights, after you know working at the college newspaper, I'd go to the Marshall, basically to catch a nap, so I could sleep for several hours and then go to work at midnight at the Post. So it's a, it's more, it, it was more than just a place to play chess. It was a, it was a club in the, in the traditional sense of a club. Yeah, as a former New Yorker who lived in in Brooklyn in one of the outer boroughs, I remember well the you know you kind of need you need little places you can squat if you're <laughs> if you're going to make a trip in New York. It's um mm-hmm. you know you you it often doesn't make sense to go home and back if you've got something happening later in the day. So among the many benefits of the uh, the um, historic Marshall Chess Club, that is definitely one of them. And of course, you've got your share of great chess stories. Um, you 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 told the one of uh, your blitz game against Bobby Fischer. Um, mm-hmm. But could you set the scene of, of uh, who else, what other historical chess figures you came across in your younger days in New York? Well, I played uh, a whole uh, slew of them. This is the, the golden age of American chess of the 50s. Um, so this includes the Byrne brothers, um, although they were not living in New York at the time. Robert came back to New York only uh, around 1968 to start uh, his, the second part of his career the second act of his career. But I played uh, Arthur Biscayer many times, Jimmy Sherwin, uh, Lombardi, of course. Uh, all these guys were familiar faces. Mrs. Marshall, Carolyn Marshall, a widow of Frank, uh, was always complaining is that she didn't see those guys very often because they had grown up at the Marshall. But then when they got better, they, um, they became traitors. They went to the Manhattan Chess Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she thought that was absolutely outrageous, uh, and uh, that's that was actually the case of Fisher as well. But you know, Ray, Ray Weinstein, I remember seeing he was a pretty strong player, um, and a, a fellow of, uh, of Bobby's uh, era. Um, you know, I, and of course there were young players at, at the time. I remember playing in the Marshall Junior Championship, and I think 1964, and playing Bruce Pandolfini. Uh, for example, um, guys like that. Uh, we grew up uh, playing in the same tournaments and uh, socializing and that type of stuff. And what about uh, Grandmaster Rosalimo? He's a name that I know he made his way to New York. Did you come across him? Oh, yeah. The first time I, I in fact, saw Rosalimo, um, and, and in fact, I tell it in, in uh 
uh, it, it was in the original book on uh, Bobby Fisher Rediscovered, and uh, you know it's now still part of the introduction, but a, a lesser part, is I was walking down the street when I was, I guess, I don't know, let me think, 14 years old with my uh, mother and my grandmother from Newton, Iowa, and my mother, who, you know, we had moved to New York, but my grandmother still lived in Iowa, and my mother was trying to shock uh, her, her mother by showing her the bohemian streets of, of Greenwich Village. So we're walking down uh, Sullivan Street, and there's this uh, strange sign that says chess. So uh, I had a little interest in chess at the time. I, I really didn't get to chess until I was 14. And we sort of, I convinced them to look inside. And this was the Rosalimo chess studio where he uh, held court. And he was there and Bobby Fisher had just shown up. And I had a vague idea who, who Bobby Fisher was. Um, not, you know, I had heard about him only anecdotally. And uh, here, here was Fisher talking to Rosalimo, who they were old friends. And Fisher was telling him about this tournament he played in, in a place like called Bled in Yugoslavia, and he was like commenting on their games. And what struck me at the time was that this was in the little part of his studio, which was sort of a storefront, uh, you know, like could be a, a a grocery store, a small grocery store, but except they were just decked out with tables of chess chess sets and he had chess sets in the window that he was selling for you know some interesting prices but most of the people in that in that uh, small little studio were playing chess and playing with one another and uh you had to pay uh, the outrageous fee i think it was like 15 cents an hour to play <laughs> right and and they were they couldn't care less who these other people this this fisher guy was because hey they they were interested in their game so that was my introduction to 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 Rosalimo and my introduced well I didn't get to meet meet him really until much later um, I played paid him a couple of times uh, I think there were both draws I think he was a little bit afraid of me but uh, he was a he was quite a character huh yeah and always uh, well known as um you know emigrated to the US for a better life and you know Obviously, accomplished as a chess player, probably best known for the Rosalima variation of the Sicilian these days, but um, also also drove a taxi to, to make a living. I mean, he really sounds like he, he did whatever he needed to. Yeah, he also recorded a, an album of folk songs. I think some of them were Russian that he, uh, he sang. Um, he, uh, and he also went back and forth between uh, America and France. Uh, I think his, his son... Um, went to the same high school that I went to, Stuyvesant High School, for a brief period, this is many years before I went. But um, I think he left after one year because his father had moved back to France, um, where he was had you know many years of history before he uh, he came to the U.S. In fact, I think he played for Nick played for uh, France in a couple of the Olympic teams. Uh, I think he may have played some of the years that the United States didn't send a team, because during the 50s there just wasn't any money for chess. Yeah, I, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that um, things things have progressed nicely in that regard. I mean, obviously, they could still get better, but uh, but yeah, I mean, the top players are are able to support themselves. Um, how strong was Rosalimo as a player? Uh, at his peak, um, at his peak, he was one of the best players in uh, in Europe. Um, and I guess Western Europe, I'd have to qualify that. Uh, in the United States, he was past his prime, uh, but he was still capable of playing, uh, you know, top-notch game with just about anyone. He got into some pretty good, strong, pretty strong U.S. championships um, during the 50s. They were like all-star events. <clears throat> uh, you know, they're like half a dozen players in those tournaments who would now be, would have been in the, t the world's top 50. Um Today in the U.S. Championship, uh, well, you know, four maybe of the players in the U.S. Championship would be in the top 50. Uh, even now, when we have this all-star lineup of really great players, um, but uh, Rosalino was quite quite powerful. Okay, yeah, yeah. So many, so many characters. Um, it, it's great to get your perspective on all these, uh, you know, both legends in New York and well-known players uh, throughout the the chess world, but. You mentioned today's players, and of course, um, we're not going to do a sort of blow-by-blow -blow of the candidates because uh, by the time listeners hear of this, it will have, <laughs> I want to say completed. I mean, hopefully it will have finished with all the rounds played. 
But um, as we record this, Nepomnichi just took a one and a half point lead and uh, then announced that he's not feeling well. <laughs> although <laughs> although uh, said he took the test. So uh, anyway, but there's no need to, I don't want to rehash that because you guys already know whoever's listening, how, how the story um, resumes. But I do. I did want to um, pick your brain a little bit, Andy, since you have so much historical uh, knowledge um, and have seen so many candidate cycles. Can you think of anything resembling today's players playing under these conditions with the uh, coronavirus testing and um, some players understandably complaining about the fact that the event's taking place, uh, like like uh, Wang Hao and Alexander Grisha? Can you think of anything even remotely comparable um, over the years? No, the- the only thing that, that I can think of that um, <clears throat> is like it, and, and it's a bit of a stretch, it's the, the Mannheim tournament of 1914, uh, which wasn't a, a candidates tournament, but it was a very strong event with, you know, Al Yekin and Marshall, and I think Buggle Yubov was in it. Um, it was the, every two years there would be a, a German Chess Union Congress, and this was the big tournament of the year. If you wanted to get the the real master title you played in the the, the German Chess Union uh, Congress, and it was played just after, uh, well, during the events during the Guns of August, uh, World War One was beginning, and every round was held under the expectation that very soon. Um, something's going to happen. We're, we're going to be all arrested since we're foreigners, uh, unless you were a German, uh, or you'd be uh, dispatched to some sort of camp, which some of the players ended up being taken to uh, um, basically a POW camp where they ended up spending the war playing chess with one another. Um, and uh, there was also a fear that you know the French army might arrive and uh, invade Germany at that point because nobody knew uh, who had the the edge? You know, the the old story of World War One was that the <clears throat> the Germans going to sweep through the, the Low Countries uh, so that their right sleeve would be in the water, uh, and they had to reach Paris so they could end the war like they had in, in 1870, or or the French would invade through the South, and nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. And there were rumors going through this Mannheim tournament every day about uh, the tournament's going to be canceled, and eventually it was canceled, and they paid off the play with uh, sort of prorated prizes based on whatever uh, money they could find. And, uh, and Marshall somehow got uh, out of Europe, uh, although uh, I think he said that he, he didn't get all of his luggage in time. And one of his bags finally arrived in New York several years later. <laughs> Never under figure out how that happened. Unbelievable. Yeah, Fabiano, in one of the post-game interviews, was saying he didn't know if he was going to get home, how he was going to get home. Um, yeah, that that's great historical perspective. And of course the, uh, Rubenstein Lasker match was also, uh, can't, didn't happen in 1914. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. It's kind of, um, yeah. One of the things that strikes me about the, the, the tournament that we're seeing now is it reflects the kind of, uh, Chess has become something like tennis to me. It it seems like there's two types of games. Um, they're either aces. In other words, some guy has an opening innovation that just knocks the game out very quickly. Or you have these long volleys. And typical day in the candidates tournament, somebody sits down, rips off 30 moves, and literally you know, takes only one minute off his clock. Uh, you know, I've been following the games on Chess Bomb, and you can <clears throat> see it on many other sites. But you can also pay attention to the clock times. And um, you, you know, Nepomniachtchi, he uh, he won uh, a game uh, basically just by sitting down and with his memory. Uh, he didn't have to start thinking until move 35. Uh, his clock, had, I think, it lost about 10 minutes at that point, and his opponent resigned out five minutes later five moves later um that's that's an ace and if you don't ace your opponent then you get into these long volleys where you play on and on and on with a minimal advantage and it becomes uh, carlson chess you know where you're <clears throat> you're trying to squeeze the most out of a, a 70 move game and as as magnus does he so often wins yeah more so than than anyone um 
Yeah, that that calls to mind a couple things. Um, number one, again, um, uh, you know the the candidates is so much in in my mind right now. Grishak just today after his game with uh, Caruana uh, said it's hard to have high ambitions when you play half the game against a computer. Um, but the other interesting thing is that it, it's true that you occasionally get these knockouts, but you also get these sort of false flags. Like uh, the 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 Ding Caruana game was particularly fascinating to me um, because. Yeah, man- that was man beats computer. Yeah. I mean, he sprung this novelty, but then somehow he was just worse. Um, yeah, I thought I was witnessing the, the, the modern version of uh, Capablanca versus Marshall when Marshall introduced the, the Marshall Gambit and the Roy Lopez. And, uh, you know, Capablanca had a choice. He could have declined accepting the Marshall Gambit, but he's, you know, it's like when when Fisher was surprised by one of Petrosian's moves in in during their candidates match, and uh, he could have declined to to take the uh, the sacrifice, but uh, as he explained later, he said, "I wanted to see what he had." Yeah. Uh, and and Capablanca wanted to see what Marshall had, and uh, uh, Ding Liren did this amazing job of of defending, uh, and eventually uh, uh, Caruana ran out of steam. Um, yeah. You know, this is type. This is the type of thing that that you know, Fisher really didn't play that type of chess. Uh, he he won a couple of games by aces, um, and uh, but he was more in the uh, uh, the Carlson style. Um, you know, there was a there was a game that Fisher played um, against uh, Bent Larson at Zurich in 1959, and he got to a position end game. Fisher has two bishops and a king, and he has three kingside pawns. And Larson has two knights and a king and three kingside pawns. And the pawns aren't damaged, and that's all they left on the board. And Mikhail Tal wrote in the tournament book, what's going on here? Is this a draw? Does this American think that we in Europe are so naive that we can lose a position like this? <clears throat> and later on, um, in, a, in a couple years later, Larson, uh, rather, Tal criticized Fisher by saying that he played on in a position until there was nothing left on the board but just two kings. Well, guess what happened? At, at Vikings A, a couple months ago, in the last round, Carlson was playing Wesley So of the United States. The final position, there's just two kings. They played on and on until there was nothing left on the board. And, and this is not unusual for Carlson because he had a game like that against uh, Nigel Short several years ago. And after it, he said, it's it's really pleasant to end with nothing but two kings left on the board. <laughs> so it's amazing how they, they, they have so much energy for chess uh, and uh, they, they play until the, the bitter end. That's that's the most unusual thing, I think, about chess today. Yeah, and I think it's it's probably mildly intimidating. I mean... It's it can't be a great feeling when you have one of these end games, even if it's an equal end game against Carlson, but you know he's going to have you sitting there grinding for three and a half hours <laughs> trying to get blood from a stone. Like that's that's intimidating, uh, and I think it could be harder to play your best under those circumstances. Although, of course, players of that level are quite practiced at it. Yeah, of course, there was a game um, in the uh, Fisher versus Taimanov match, um, and. Uh, Fisher, it was before one of the games that I, I used in the Bobby Fisher versus Rediscovered, the, the, the great bishop versus knight endgame that Fisher won. Um, but Fisher had uh, pressed uh, Taimanov quite a bit, and then they had to adjourn. And before they adjourned, Taimanov could have given up a piece and gotten to a rook and bishop versus rook endgame. He would have the rook, Fisher would have the rook and the bishop. And while he was adjourned, his, his seconds asked him, what, what are you doing? Don't you know you that's a draw? And Taimanov said, yes, I know it's a draw, but I knew that Fisher would press me to the very end, and I just didn't want to go through that experience. <laughs> wow. So, so, he, so he didn't give up his piece for the pawn, and he ended up losing that endgame. And, uh, oh, that's another funny thing that I should mention. Uh, just recently, the the games that uh, Taimanov played the practice games he played before he f- faced Fisher. They've been like a, a Soviet state secret for many, many years because 
I, I alluded to them in uh, my, my uh, January Chess Life column when I talked about training up. Uh, Fisher played, uh, played a practice match of like eight or ten games against two grandmasters, very strong players. One was Yuri Balashov and the other is Yevgeny Vasyakov. And Vasyakov and Balashov were in a separate room. They could move the pieces on their board to analyze. They could use opening books. They could use end game books. And when they made their move on the clock, they had an extra hour more than Taimanov. So he's playing super grandmasters, basically, guys who should be like 400 points better than him. And these games have never been revealed until just recently by Balashov. You can find them on one of the Russian websites. And the striking thing about them is that Taimanov was not in good shape at that time. I mean, Fisher was it's magnificent that Fisher won 6 nothing, but he didn't play very well in these practice games. So that was a harbinger of, of what was to come. Huh, that's interesting. Um, so did you come across that in your, your research for, for Bobby Fisher Rediscovered or in the Chess Life column you mentioned? Or how did you, how did you come uh, across I just found out about that the other day. I knew about the, the, the training games. Um, and in fact, there's a dispute about you know how many games that they, what the results were. Uh, Taimanov said you know uh, basically all the games were drawn, and Vasyakov said no, 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 no. They, we 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 crushed him, and the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And they were just they just turned up on a, a Russian site in the, like in the last month. Um, and it's uh, you know sometimes you can't figure out exactly what uh, the truth is. It takes a while for it uh, to be revealed. Yeah. Uh, uh, Another thing about Fisher that strikes me, uh, there was a book, uh, you may never even seen it, it was called Bobby Fisher, The Greatest? Question mark. It was written by Max Ertha in the 70s, and he was trying to make the case that Fisher was the, probably the greatest player who ever lived. And he compared uh, Fisher with um, uh, Capablanca, in, particularly in the endgame, and with Elyekin, particularly in the middle game, and so on. And he, and he gave a, a, a Capablanca game, uh, and he said, look, notice how the simplicity, the purity of uh, Capablanca's plan. And here's a Fisher game. Here's another Fisher endgame, which is more complex. And, he, and in fact, he used this Taimanov game uh, that I did use in the book, uh, the bishop versus knight endgame, with all the, like, six pawns apiece. And he said, Fisher is much more complex. Fisher has these maneuvers that it's really hard to detect what's going on. And I, I think Irvick missed the point about that, because uh, when Fisher died, there was a, uh, a memorial service at the Marshall Chess Club. And uh, several people who knew Fisher spoke, including Dick Cavett, the, the talk show host. Uh, Frank Brady was the host. Um, and Asa Hoffman, who's an old friend of mine, uh, spoke. But there was a guy named Renato Naranya, a Filipino player, um, who had played in the Interzonal in 1970 uh, with Fisher. Fisher won the Interzonal easily. But there was one game that Naranya had drawn uh, with Taimanov. Uh, and in fact, in the final position, which is before adjournment time, um, Naranya has the two bishops and uh, against Taimanov's bishop and a knight. He has a better pawn structure. And and Fisher said, like, what what went wrong there? You didn't you know you were better? And Naranya said, No, well of course I knew I was better, but you know, I, I didn't see how I was going to win. And Fisher thought this was amazing. Well, you don't have to know how. <laughs> Just move the pieces around. You have the two bishops. And that was his philosophy, which is, I guess, is I guess the Carlson philosophy to some extent. Um, something's going to turn up. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great story. Yeah, and it uh, definitely um, highlights the the similarities. Um, I mean, Carlson, of course, learns from all of the legends, but took a little bit from everyone. Um, and yeah, obviously, in the conversation now for the the greatest. Um, so you meant so you're, these are some great Fisher stories already. Um, what what else did you discover in um, in updating Bobby Fisher rediscovered? Like what what was the was there um, was there a discovery that that was the impetus for the the desire to update this, or was it more just that it had been a while and stuff had filtered out? Um, actually, I was working on the, uh, the the book on how to swindle in chess, um, and as well into it, and then I got a. Uh, 
an email from the publisher saying they this was I guess a year ago in January um, uh, saying that they would were interested in doing the Fisher book uh, in fact I started work on the revision of the Fisher book exactly one year ago today um, but what struck me when I started working on it um, I had for the, the Bobby Fisher Rediscovered came out in 2001. It was the first book I used a computer to analyze. Um, and I, you know, I thought I found some interesting stuff with the help of the computer. And a few years later, Gary Kasparov wrote his great predecessor's book on Fisher. And he credited some of my analysis, which surprised me. And he found some improvements because, well... <laughs> which yeah, didn't, didn't surprise you. <laughs> it didn't surprise me. Um, but then when I looked at these games again, uh, both the games that he analyzed and the games that I did originally with a, a, a current computer, and there are a bunch of computers online that you can use uh, for free, I'm amazed at how much I got wrong in 2001. Um, and, and there are improvements you can find on, on, uh, on uh, Kasparov. That was the point I made in, in that February Chess Life column about the half-life of truth, that here's that Fisher game against Tal, which was supposed to be, it was a win for Fisher, you know, after they, back when it was played in 1959, and then the position turns out to be a draw, according to Kasparov, and, and now, well, or it might be a draw, and now it's definitely a draw. Um, so you find a lot more with the help of computers nowadays. And uh, that was a, a you, I, I kept like rewriting page after page of my of that uh, Bobby Fisher book. Uh, and the other thing that I, I added to the book, uh, and it's uh, in the epilogue and some other parts, is I wanted to use games that have been forgotten, uh, mainly because, well, in those days, uh, Fisher's, uh, non-tournament games were not considered serious. You know, he he included this one game against a guy named uh, Seeley, uh, and it was from a simultaneous exhibition that he gave in California. Um, and it was highly unusual that he, you know, that he was giving a, an exhibition game, uh, a simul game, even though it was a clock simul. Um, and that's that's a very fine game that it appears in my uh, my sixty memorable games by Fisher. What struck me is that he I looked at the other games that Fisher played in that simul, and they're amazing. Um, and for many years you couldn't find these because uh, they just didn't appear. You know, you, you look into a database of Fisher games, and 1964 was a blank because 1964 he wasn't playing in the interzonal. He was just doing this. Uh, cross-country simul tour and so those games just just didn't exist well i found a game against a guy named roy hoppy uh it's a spectacular game it was played during the same exhibition in which fisher uh was uh playing this game against selly that he used in his book and i analyzed that and that's a really a wonderful game that i included in this and in fact it that that neither of those games were the one that he was probably concentrating on the most because there was another game that he played uh, in that exhibition against John Blackstone, uh, which I think you can probably find now online, in which uh, Blackstone was getting in in this furious sacrificial attack against Fisher, uh, and uh, was going back and forth, and and who knows how that was going to turn out. That I think was the game that Fisher was really worried about. So his ability to to concentrate on on all of those things um, is just is just amazing. Um, another thing I should mention is that uh, you also got an insight from his simul games uh, what openings that Fisher was exploring. And I remember there was a book um, called uh, Chess Openings, Ancient and Modern, and modern meant eighteen ninety three. Hmm. Uh, it was written by two guys named Freeborough and Rankin. And I remember uh, it came out, it was republished uh, after the Fisher Spassky match in 1972 with an introduction by Frank Brady. And Frank wrote in the introduction that he saw Fisher's own copy of this book with Fisher's own notes penciled in. Uh, Fisher's, why would Fisher care what was played, you know, in 1862? Well, he did. Because. According to Brady, 
Fisher had all sorts of interesting new ideas about the Danish gambit and the Scotch game and the Evans gambit. Um, now, of course, it's funny that the, the Scotch and the Evans were later revived by uh, Kasparov. But I wonder what Fisher had to say about him. And what, yeah, my God, is there anything new to say about the Danish gambit? I can't imagine. But, you know, who knows? So, we're, so Fisher yeah. took a lot of lot of secrets with him. Yeah, although uh, getting back to to your, your column, The Half-Life of Truth, that you mentioned in uh, Chess Life magazine, um, that was my uh, one of my favorites out of your recent columns. The the idea being that people like to to debate basically about like you know in some famous position like like you mentioned the uh, Fisher Spassky game one end game could Fisher have held it could Fisher not have held it and it goes back and forth back and forth over the years based on the available information and now we're getting closer and closer to a final verdict but then again it's like almost fifty years later at some point like you know are we really going to keep reshaping the narrative as you say <laughs> every time a, a new move emerges and in a similar vein, what you say about the opening novelties, it, it makes me a little bit sad because like Fisher may have uncovered something really cool in the Danish that was way ahead of its time, but now we can just fire up the 3,500 engine and it's like, is whatever he discovered really going to be able to compete with that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's something that's going to be amazing as, as uh, computers get stronger and stronger. Um, who knows? Um, I, the other thing that I was uh, interested in, well, when I was doing the, the, uh, the Fisher book, um, I was also preparing another book on Soviets, and I was doing this book on swindles. And I, the funny thing is that I had to put the swindles book aside uh, for months, and uh, I alluded to it in uh, again in Chess Life when I wrote uh, uh, early in, in uh, 2019. I, I said that there should be a new symbol uh, for annotators. Some of the old symbols that we use, like a plus over minus, just just don't work for end games anymore. Because in, in many of the end games, we know, you know, this is a, a not just a plus. So it's, it's a win or a draw. Yeah, exactly. There, there's no other possibility. But we need a symbol that would cover uh, the type of move that is the most practical to play. It's a move that um, the computers will definitely say is objectively not the best. But it is the best chance for you. You know, if you're down a rook and you have an attack and you're technically lost, the computer's going to tell you to trade queens because that'll minimize your disadvantage. It'll prolong the game. Well, that's that's insane. Uh, and and so in this chess life column, I, I propose using a new symbol to to designate this um, this most practical move, um, and it's sort of the, the swindler move. Uh, and that's how I, I developed the idea for um, the book, um, How to Swindle in Chess. Um, and then I, it, the funny thing is then uh, the book should have probably come out last year, um, but uh, for whatever reason, it, it just came out recently. And then I found out uh, almost the day I got my, my own copy of it that uh, New in Chess had published their own version, uh, which I'm sure is a very fine book. I haven't seen it. Uh, but... <laughs> uh, I, and you can probably get some of these books uh, online. Although you may have noticed that Amazon is now delaying deliveries of of like a month for uh, just books and other things. You can you can get other books. Uh, you can get the same books you know from the USCF and other sources. But uh, it may, you may have to uh, hunt to find some of my books. Yeah. The. Uh... Andy's book, uh, Grandmaster Soltis's book, being called How to Swindle in Chess. And yeah, I also noticed that I got emails almost probably, I mean, I knew about your book from corresponding with you, but at a very similar time from Grandmaster David Smeridan, who of course has been on the show, and I'm also a big fan of, of his writing called The Complete Chess Swindler. So Andy, I've got some follow-up questions for you about how to swindle in chess, but first we're going to take a quick break. Grandmaster Andy Soltis is one of my favorite people to hear chess history and stories from, and if you want more of that sort of thing, check out Gary Kasparov's acclaimed My Great Predecessors series on chessable.com. 
Kasparov places the chess contributions of all of the greats in historical contexts, and Chessable's Move Trainer technology provides trainable examples from Kasparov's game analysis. Volumes 1 to 4 of My Great Predecessors are already available on Chessable, and Volume 5 featuring Karpov and Korchnoi is coming soon to Chessable.com. Back to the interview. So, Andy, as you say, the book is still uh, making its way into the world, and I haven't gotten a chance to check it out yet, How to Swindle in Chess. Um, but we've got a lot of listeners, uh, with, as, as we alluded to earlier, with, stuck in their homes ready to work on some chess. So this, I, I imagine, How to Swindle in Chess um, skews more towards the practical side of chess competition. But, but what advice, if you were to kind of bullet point a few tips for how to play when you're in trouble, what, what did you discover in, in writing this book? Well, I think one of the first points is you want to get an idea whether your position is, is, is truly desperate, whether it's, you know, swindle time, or you can, you can hold a position just by um, minimizing uh, his, his chances of winning. Um, then you have to figure out if you're really lost Identify the, the, the key tactical resources. Uh, there are only a couple of them, probably, in each position. You know, there's a diagonal that can be exploited. There's a file that you can attack. Um, and, you know, there are, chess is, is basically a game of, of good fortune, and there are ways that you can make yourself lucky. Um, on one of the key points I've found is that if you can give your opponent choices, you have an excellent chance of getting him to make a mistake. Uh, it sounds crazy because, you know, if, if, you're, if you're losing, you want to force matters. You want to limit his choices. You want him to make checks and threats and captures and so on so that he doesn't have opportunities to think about what to do against you. But in fact, if you give him uh, choices, you increase the likelihood of uh, an error. He'll have more opportunities to go wrong. Um, and I also found out that there are very different attitudes of the player who is going to be swindled, the swindly, as I would call it. <laughs> nice. Um, there are you know, players who get swindled because they think only two results are possible. They think they're either going, either going to win or they're going to draw. So they don't consider the possibility that you have a tactical resource. They don't see that, you know, that you're setting a trap. Um, or they think that they're going to... Another mindset of the Swindley is he thinks he's going to win just by playing routine moves. Um, I remember a game in, in New York in a uh, tournament, a speed tournament, where uh, Vichy Anand had a, uh, a winning position against uh, Kasparov. And he just thought that, well, I'm going to advance. I have a past connected uh, H-pawn, and I just push that pawn. Uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to win. Um, and he disregarded what was happening on the other side of the board. And he's playing Kasparov. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you don't, you don't let somebody like that uh, get out of the box. Um, uh, another way, well, there's some uh, famous examples of what some players call swimming. When a player goes swimming, he he's, he's doesn't have any ideas anymore. He thinks, um, you know, I'll just get to the past the time control. I don't have to do anything before that. It's more like treading water, actually. Um, there's a famous game uh, in a candidate's playoff in 1962 between uh, Paul Karras and Yefim Geller. And uh, whoever won that match would then um, be seeded into the candidates' matches uh, the next time around. And that was really important because, as it turns out, um, there was a good possibility that whoever won that match would be playing a world championship match immediately because if Botvinnik had decided not to define, defend his title in 1963, then uh, it, then uh, the winner of this uh, playoff match between Karras and Geller would be playing for the world championship. Anyway, to get back to the game, Karras is just killing Geller. He wins the exchange. He's got he's killing him all over the board, and then he just stops playing moves. He just like sort of waits 
uh, and tries to find uh, a, a way to reach. In those days, they had adjournments. He wants to get to the point where he can adjourn, and then you know the game will be over. Well, uh, slowly but surely, Geller keeps coming up with these little shots. Uh, Geller, uh, Karras misses them one after another, and he ends up losing the game. Uh, and uh, that could have been, you know, that could, that would have been the the tragedy of the final tragedy of Karras's life if he had ended up losing that match. As it turns out, he did win it, um, and Botvinnik did not give up the title prematurely. So. Uh, it didn't have any effect on chess history, but it, it very nearly might have. Yeah, so so many um, so many great stories, and I was I, in thinking about this book, Andy. I was also curious. Um, uh, how would you go about researching it? Because I'm sure you have a huge mental file of games in in your brain at this point, just from a life of reading and studying, reading about and studying chess. But in terms of uh, looking for additional instructive examples, how, how would you approach uh, finding swindles and then extracting lessons from them? Yeah, that was a very hard thing because it's not like uh, there's a, you, you can't go on chessgames.com and, and uh, use the search key. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, no, I, I went through a huge library of books that I have uh, and uh, I found some, some wonderful examples. I mean, um, Capablanca swindling Ruben Fine uh, at AVRO, for example, um, and and in the more recent examples, Magnus Carlsen. You know, the young Magnus Carlsen was just an incredible swindler. Uh, you, you probably know the game where he uh, swindled. Uh, who was it? Uh, uh, van Vele, I think it was. Uh, he had a uh, a lost position. He had nine seconds left, um, and the position. Uh, on the board was like, you know, plus six in favor of Von Vele. And not only did he, Carlson, make the time control, but he won the game. Um, and, and, you know, Victor Korchnoi was watching this and he said that that just, without, without parapsychology, it's impossible to explain that. Uh, what well, Korchnoi happened. knew his parapsychology. <laughs> yes, he, he believed in that. Um, but let's see, I found games like that. I found that uh, Judith Polgar is an amazing swindler um, and, and has been for many years. Uh, Alexander Grishuk uh, always complained that, you know, whenever I play her, she swindles me. He, he, he would get, you know, wonderful positions, uh, uh, you know, again, plus two uh, advantages that the computers say, you know, it's a matter of technique. Uh, and... Uh, um, and there it goes. And then, of course, I went back to Lasker because <clears throat> Lasker um, is like the, the before Marshall was a swindler. There was Lasker. He just had an amazing uh, defensive ability. Um, and let's see what other things I discovered is that uh, it's more than just a one move. Very few, very rarely um, are there swindles that are just a matter of one move taking advantage of an oversight. It's usually a process. And uh, often the, the swindly makes one mistake that throws away a good part of his, his or her advantage. And he doesn't realize what's going on. And he becomes vulnerable. Um, I think blundering is usually a two-stage process. Um, and when you get into that, that blunder zone, um, you become more and more vulnerable. Um, and uh, you know, as so often happens, a player will uh, refuse a draw. I mean, Carlson has, has been amazing when he, he, he had opportunities to to draw positions that he had previously was lost. And he declines the opportunity. He plays on because he knows um, he smells defeat. He smells fear in his opponents. Uh, and that's just, just amazing. Fisher was like that also uh, in some of his, his finest games. He... he, he uh, rejected opportunities to simplify when he, he could have gotten a draw. Great stuff. So yeah, I mean, it sounds well, well worth exploring as, as well as the Fisher book, which has a hundred games. And of course, um, you know, Fisher's, um, uh, my most memorable games, uh, of course only goes up to 1967 or something like that. So this has many more games from the great Fisher to learn from. So, um, listeners can check them out as 
they would under normal circumstances already be available. And I think you'll get, you can, at least with, uh, with Bobby Fisher rediscovered, I was able to get the Kindle ebook. So, um, no, no, uh, no, um, friction to, to getting that book delivered. Um, <laughs> no, I think you can get that. Uh, in fact, you know, Bobby, uh, actually saw, uh, the first edition of this, uh, Bobby Fisher rediscovered, um, uh, Somebody who, uh, who was a friend of his from Iceland brought it to him in Iceland um, and uh, uh, gave him a copy, and they, they looked over the book. Um, and he, he wrote about it in a recent book that was published, this Icelander, and uh, Bobby apparently liked it. <laughs> okay, I never really that's... had... Yeah, I did never have much contact with Fisher in, in later years, so I, I really don't know. Uh, uh, but <laughs> that was sort of, that that sort of made my day when I read that. Yeah, not so easy to get his stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that's that's good to hear, and of course, I'm sure he remembered you from from the New York days. So um, that that's pretty cool. Um, so, Andy, uh, last thing before before we uh, wrap this up, I was just curious again, since we have so many people listening who are stuck at home and studying chess, what, what advice would you give? Let's say someone suddenly has two hours a day they could spend on chess, which was maybe unimaginable previously. How, 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 how could they spend that time to, um, to get better? Well, um, I, I, would, I would play a lot of chess. <laughs> One of the amazing things about uh, Magnus Carlsen um, is that he would go to a tournament um, like Vikingsay when he was young and as soon as the day was done, he would go off and play on the ICC. And he's the first player, I think, who of, of the modern era, who grew up basically without a, a strong second when he was very young. He didn't have a teacher. He was self-educated. He wasn't learning by playing against a computer. He was playing just games constantly against other players. Uh, you know, I mean, if if there's a human version of Alpha Zero learning the aspects of chess just by playing, that's Carlson. And Carlson is this amazing character because he his versatility is his strength. It's not just, you know, that, okay, he can attack and he can defend. That is his ability, is, is that he can play any opening. Uh, he can play any type of endgame. Um, and uh, he... He, there, there are no positions that you can say, okay, like with Petrosian. If, he, if, he, if Petrosian didn't get a Petrosian position, he was just not going to play well that day, and he would offer a draw. Uh, Tal, similar to that. Um, if he didn't get a, 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 the kind of tactical game, he was sort of not nearly as, as strong. Carlson, I don't see any diminution in his, his ability in any type of position. Uh, he plays at full strength. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he just uh, got this an enormous amount of experience. And he also learned how to lose. And that's an important thing. He learned how to take defeat. Um, the old Soviet view was that two draws is better than a win and a loss. Because if you lose a game, it destroys yourself. Uh, you're just not going to play well the next day. And Carlson has this uh, remarkable ability to come back after he loses a game because he's, he's lost many games before. <laughs> of course, it's, it's hard to say that now when the guy's up, what, 115 games without a defeat? Right, yeah. Uh, uh, straight games. But uh, he, he, you learning, not, learning how to get over defeat uh, is just... Um, it's actually part of the game. It's an important. It's probably the most important psychological lesson, uh, psychological skill uh, that you can have. And and chess is a, a series of skill sets that you have to internalize. Excellent. Well, I don't think you'll have to tell our listeners twice to, to play a lot of chess. That's a relatively um, that's a easy to take advice. Do, are are you? Where do you come down on the debate about how helpful it is to play blitz chess as opposed to slower time controls when you're playing a lot of chess, as you say, to, to improve? Yeah, I think that blitz chess is actually quite good. I, I, uh, I, I agree with Bronstein, who said that uh, you, know, uh, you can play very good uh, intuitive chess and uh, giving yourself an extra time to think about the moves, yeah, you might, you know, might you might develop uh, a somewhat better move. Um, but if you, it's really that you 
put off your you display your intuition in uh, speed chess. And if you can learn to make quick moves, good quick moves, intuitively, that's the the strongest thing you can you can uh, uh, work on. Uh, the other thing is if you're you're not you can also work on chess by playing over your own games. And again, another, another Bobby Fischer story, uh, Ruth Herring described how uh, when she was um, living in San Francisco with her husband, uh, Peter Biasis, and Fischer was their house guest um, back in uh, 1981. In fact, I, I visited uh, their home uh, with Marcy uh, around that time. Fischer somehow did stick around to to see us. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, it was during that that sojourn when Fisher was staying with them that uh, he saw her and asked, uh, why, do you, why do you keep all these score sheets, uh, your old games? And she said, I don't know. I don't really know why I keep them. And he said, well, you should study them. You should go over them. Uh, they're really important. And uh, he had an interest in, in other people's games. And it reminded me of something that... Um, Elliot Hurst told me. Um, Elliot Hurst was a, a, a great player of the 1950s who then became a, a psychologist and academic. But he was also a champion of the Marshall Chess Club. And several years ago, there was a, an evening at the Marshall that was a, in which past pre, uh, champions of the Marshall were honored. And I, I had known Elliot over the years. We see each other once every 10 years or so. But uh, this is like the last time I saw him. Uh, and he said uh, that he met Fisher sometime, I think, in the, the 90s. And uh, they had dinner together. And then Fisher went into one of his political rants. And then Bobby said, well, let's take a look at a game. And, and her said, but Bobby, you know, you're much better than I am. You always were. I'm not playing chess these days. Why should we look at a game together? And Fisher's attitude was, of course we should look at it. You can learn from anyone. And you can certainly learn from playing over your own games. You can figure out you know, what you went wrong. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the old theory was that you should only look at your losses. Uh, but that's just depressing. Right, I mean, it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, you can actually learn more, I think, by looking at your victories and Nowadays, you could do it with a computer and realize that you could have played better. That you know, these are you got one of the positions that you play well, and there are still things that you can learn. Uh, maybe you should prepare the attack a little, a little better. Maybe you should take a little more time. Don't push that pawn in the end game that fast. Sometimes it gets ahead of you, and you know, you can't catch up to it. Um, chess is a, a such an elusive game. You can't. Uh, you can't master it in in uh, in a lifetime. It'll take at least two. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, so, um, a- excellent stories and historical perspective as always, Andy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that's that's great. I, one, uh, I know these are tough times, but let me tell you one final story. Um, of course, in in um, I was after the, I had finished the Fisher book uh, and. Um, this was, uh, I think, in October of 2001. And I was sitting at my desk at the New York Post, uh, and uh, the editor called all of the reporters into the city room, and, which is very unusual. Uh, and we you know, filed in, and then we saw some recognizable figures. They were the top medical officials of New York City, the top health department people. And they explained that someone had sent a, an envelope, a letter to the editor filled with anthrax, to the post a month before and had left had been left unopened on somebody's desk this is deadly stuff and a couple of weeks later just because they're you know catching up on stuff that hadn't been done in the past month this was right after September 11th someone moved that envelope and some of the spores got out and uh, the people were infected with this skin form of anthrax which isn't which is bad, you know, cutaneous form is bad, but it's not, not awful. And so the, the medical officials, the city health people were saying, okay, just stay calm. This is, if you need uh, antibiotics, we have them, 
but you're you're totally safe. It's not going to. It didn't become airborne. And since we're reporters, so we somebody said, well, how do you know it didn't become airborne? And the woman uh, official, I think she sort of smiled when she said, if it had become airborne, you'd all be dead by now. Hmm. So and. On that <laughs> note, I, I, I know that whatever we, <laughs> there's there's some sort of um, protection out there that we're all going to get through this, and uh, I want to be there with you. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for being there with us. I know a lot of people, chess can be a great escape in, in these difficult times, and uh, hopefully um, these stories um, provide some inspiration and some entertainment, and uh Thanks again, Andy. I ho- hope hope we can chat again sometime in the future. I know you're you're always busy, always on to the next book. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we we are we are grateful for that. So thanks again, Andy, and uh, um, wishing the best you and your wife. Uh, take care of yourselves and be safe. Same to you. Special thanks to my producer Matthew Passy, and thanks to you all for continuing to listen to and spread the word about perpetual chess. You can spread the word on Twitter. Follow me; I'm at official one You can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the dialogue about each interview after it is released. I also want to thank the people who've written a few new reviews on Apple Podcasts. That's good to see. Reviews on other podcast platforms and YouTube are also appreciated. But of course, most of all, I would like to thank the people who provide financial support to the show, especially these days as a lot of our lives are in upheaval. We're stuck at home. There's work changes and all that stuff. So it means the world to me that you guys have stuck with me and even in some cases added new support in these crazy times. So thanks. I really appreciate it for anyone who's able to support it is the Perpetual Chess Patreon page where you can donate through PayPal if you go to perpetualchesspod.com. So with that out of the way, first of all, of course, I would like to thank the sponsor of the show, Chessable. And I also would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities for their support. They include Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryan of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, and I also would like to give thanks to the following people and entities Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Peja, FM Andre Tarakov, Andrew Perry, Anidi Deer, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wayne Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Chabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, aka Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, David Bleskachek, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Lucas of the U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramerly of Chessable.com, Douglas Matthew, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am elect or possibly not I am elect, Donnie Ariel Esquire, Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Francis Latart Lavoie, Francis Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schutt, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Murr, Jason Anfang, Jason Willem, J.D. Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Stranod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman of the U.S. Chess Federation, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, 
WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Bojowski, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Alert, Miguel Araspati, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solin, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hollenbach, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Dougherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Thomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Soyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I will catch you all soon. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.